Welcome to the Mind All My Money podcast presented by Pinnacle Trust. Hosted by RebelGrove.com publisher Neil McCrady and Pinnacle Trust financial guru Martin Palomo, the Mind All My Money podcast tackles the financial questions we're all thinking about. From paying for college to saving for retirement, from life insurance needs to 401ks and everything in between. The goal is to help you take the stress out of financial concerns and give you some tips to enjoy life while your mind is on your money. Now here are your hosts, Neil McCrady and Martin Paloma. Welcome into another edition of Mind on My Money podcast presented by Pinnacle Trust. I'm Neil McCrady. Today on the show, Martin Palomo had other things to do. He's too big for the show. He's been hosting some podcasts, and so all of a sudden he's big timing. And that's okay. It's all right. We'll, uh, we'll move on. Uh, Stacy Wall of Pinnacle Trust, kind enough to fill in for Martin today. And Scott Prey of ESPN Back from 95 days in the NBA bubble down in Orlando, I am uh, really looking forward to talking about that, what it was like, just the day-to-day of being isolated like that. Sometimes I think it sounds like heaven. Sometimes I think it sounds terrible. I can't, I can't decide which, but we'll talk, about, uh, we'll talk about all of that. 95 days in the bubble. Yeah, 95 <laughs> days in the bubble. And, and there were people that were there longer than that, Stacey. There were some that were there more than 100 days, which is just crazy, but they, they were there. Sure. Yeah. Uh, all right, we'll do that in a second. First, let me tell you, I'm coming to you from the Clark Ford Studios. Clark Ford's in Amory, Mississippi, 662-257-1900 that number. Call it. Ask for Corey Clark. Tell Corey what Ford product you're looking for. He'll send you a quote within 15 minutes in business hours. It's really that simple. It's right to the bottom line. There's no hassle. There's no haggle. You get your quote, and the rest is up to you. You can shop that quote around. Corey doesn't care. It's not taking up any of his time. Or you can do what I've done, what I recommend that you do, and that's hop into a Clark Ford. You will love the service. You'll love the product. Corey really wants to be your car guy. He really wants to be your truck guy. People always say, what does that mean? Call the number. You'll start to find out. 662-257-1900. And, Stacy, before we get started uh, with today's show, tell the people about Pinnacle Trust and how they can get in touch with you all. Yeah, thanks, Neil, for having me and Scott. And we're live from the Pelican Club Studios in Madison, Mississippi. Uh, and I think most of our listeners know about Pinnacle Trust if you've been around and, and a regular listener. But uh, I started the company in 1997, so we're 23 or so years old. Um, and we've grown to be one of the largest um uh, managers of assets and financial planning and retirement plans uh, in the in the South, uh, but we really enjoy working with clients and helping them to come up with a plan for their financial security. And one, once they we help them get to retirement, and once they get to retirement, we help them through their retirement years, uh, making sure that. Hopefully, you know, they don't run out of money and they've invested it wisely. And, and also so many other issues that come up with transferring wealth and wills. And, you know, just the, the list is endless. But um, it's been a great ride. I've got some fantastic people. And as you guys both know, there's nothing, there's nothing worse than having people that don't really care. And there's nothing better than having great people and We've got a fantastic staff at Pinnacle Trust, and I'm most grateful for that. So, um, pintrust.com, 601-957-0323. Okay, Neil, um, we're talking COVID today, I think. We're talking um, COVID uh, in the bubble. We're going to get to with Scott and, and what that was like, uh, not having COVID in the bubble. And, and that's incredibly interesting. But before we got there, uh, I, I assume most of our listeners know that you've kind of got, um, you're, you're very passionate about this, a little crawl up your butt um, Probably fair. with regards to COVID. Yep. Um, so pretend I'm a first-time listener. And, and my first question for you is, just give me the 30,000-foot level, and we'll dig a little deeper, but give me the 30,000-foot level on your feelings around the virus. Okay, well, when it started in March, I was I was alarmed. I was scared. I saw the models I'm talking about two million people dying. You know, I thought, hey, this is going to change our lives. This is th- there's all these people are saying this, and we're having these daily press conferences at at the White House, and um, 
you know, we're all finding out about Tony Fauci and we're all watching this thing and we're all scared. And I'm looking in my neighborhood every day and, and, and everyone's locked down and people are going for walks and no one's talking to anybody. And my parents live here. They're, 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 they were 77 when this started. They're 78 now. And, you know, we, we said, hey, we, we can't see you. We'll talk to you. We're FaceTiming my parents who live 10 minutes away. Um, you know, and, and, um, I, my kids, I watched what happened with my kids. I had to go up. I've told you this. Uh, I had to go up and get my daughter Campbell, who was at the time a freshman at the university of Arkansas was having an absolutely fantastic freshman year. Just could not have had a better freshman year up to that point. She'd uh, done really well in school. She'd made her grow up a little bit. She made great friends. She joined a, a sorority that was a perfect fit for her. Um, all of those things. And I had to go up and get her. And um, on the way up to Fayetteville, I listened to this podcast. It was a professor at the University of Minnesota who, frankly, scared the hell out of me. And, uh, you know, I checked into a hotel. And, I, and, and man, this was weird. This is March. Uh, it was Friday, March the 13th, which was my daughter Caroline's. 17th birthday. I'll never forget these few days. So Campbell, who is uh, 21 months older than, than Caroline, Campbell had planned a surprise birthday party for Caroline in Oxford on Friday night, March the 13th. She'd arranged it with a bunch of their mutual friends and a bunch of Caroline's friends. And uh, she was coming home for the weekend and was going to take Caroline to the surprise party, spend the weekend with us, and then go back on Sunday back up to Fayetteville to finish her spring semester. Actually, she had one week till they went to spring break, and she had a spring break trip planned with all of her friends. There was going to be chaperones, the whole deal. They were going down to 30A area. They were going to have a lot of fun. She was really excited about it. Again, I mean, she had a 4-0 at this point in the spring semester. I mean, life was – she was rocking. You know what I mean? Good I mean, as it can get. As right. good as it can get, man, she was just cruising. I mean, she was – uh, in the process of getting a job as a spin instructor up at a studio there in Fayetteville, life was just really good. And when we would talk to her every day, we would hang up the phone and, and say, God, she sounds great. And, and we were just, life was good. And she came home on that Thursday afternoon. And that morning, I almost called her and said, hey, don't come. Don't come. You're going to end up having to come home soon. This They're going to shut you all down. And I didn't do it. I just... Hated to be the bearer of bad news. But I saw it coming because the day before, and I'm backtracking a little, Stacey, I apologize. The day before, I had driven, well, it was the Tuesday before, I had driven three-quarters of the way to Nashville. Ole Miss was playing in the SEC tournament. Ole Miss was one of the bottom four seeds. They were playing Georgia in the first round of the SEC tournament on that Wednesday night. And the only reason I was going was because I expected that there would be a lot of roster turnover and that that was going to be my last opportunity to really talk to a bunch of those guys before the roster blew up. And I, I was like, I probably need to do this. This is my job. And I got three-quarters of the way up there, and Adam Kuffner with, with Ole Miss Media Relations was kind enough to call me and say, hey, I don't know if you've heard, but they've shut the locker rooms. You're not going to be able to get in the locker rooms. And I thought, so I pulled over. I can't remember where in Tennessee I was. And I sat there for about 15 minutes, and I said, what is the point? And I canceled, my re- I, I canceled my reservation, and I drove home. And on that Wednesday night, I covered, covered in quotes, Ole Miss and, uh, and Georgia from my television. And as you know, Stacey, Scott, you probably don't, I'm a pretty big Oklahoma City Thunder fan. My brother used to live in Oklahoma City. Uh, he moved there right about the time that the Thunder moved there. And we would go up to OKC, and we saw this young team with Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant and James Harden and Serge Ibaka and, and man it was a lot of fun and we would go to NBA games and just really enjoyed it and so that night the Thunder that Wednesday night the Thunder were scheduled to play the Utah Jazz it was a big game at the time because the winner would be the the four seed in the in the Western Conference playoffs if the playoffs ended if the season ended that night ironically um and I, so at halftime of the Ole Miss-Georgia game, Georgia was popping Ole Miss, and I pretty much had my column and stuff written. So I said, well, if I miss a couple minutes of the Ole Miss-Georgia game, it's okay. And I flipped over to, uh, to the Thunder Jazz game. They were getting ready to tip. They had introduced the players. 
uh, Rumble the Bison had beat the drum and all that stuff, and he'd rolled off, and the officials are on the floor. The two starting lineups are on the floor, and yet they're not starting. And I'm watching it going, what is this? And I kept watching, and then all of a sudden I saw some of the Thunder medical people run over to the scorer's table, and the two teams sort of leave the floor, and Chris Paul is asking the Jazz about Rudy Gobert, and you realize, oh, wow, this is the first coronavirus thing, and this game's not going to get played. And that game didn't get played. It turned out that was the final night of the pre-bubble NBA season. Uh, Ole Miss finished up, lost to Georgia. Uh, Between games, I think it was Arkansas and maybe Vanderbilt played the second game. Between those two games, the SEC announced no fans the next day. And I was talking to someone. I'll keep him protected because I don't know that he'd want me to say his name, who was telling me, hey, I don't know. I don't know that these games are getting played tomorrow. And so the next day, I'm – that, that Thursday, the day that Campbell was supposed to come home, she's on the road, and I'm at the gym, Stacy, the gym you go to when you're in Oxford, and I'm at the gym, and I get a call that goes, hey, watch this. These next 10 minutes are about to be wild. And I'm like, what? And he goes, just watch. And sure enough, the world shuts down. In ten, the sports world shuts down in a 10-minute period. All of the tournaments, the NCAA, college baseball season, it's all gone. And I came home. And I knew what was coming, and sure enough, Campbell called me about 2 o'clock. She was passing through Memphis, and the University of Arkansas had just announced that they were going virtual the rest of the semester. Her spring semester was over, and she got out of the car. I, I told her, I said, turn around and go home. And she goes, no, I, I go back to Fayetteville. And I said, I'll have to come up and help you this weekend. Just go back. Be with your friends. Go back. And she said, no, I'm, I'm, I made it this far. And she got out of the car just sobbing, you know. And, I mean, there was nothing I could say. It was unprepared for this. And what I remember most about it, Stacy, was going up to Reed Hall in, in Fayetteville and moving her out that day. And all of these girls, you know how we all what are. What equals that? This is, this is Saturday, March the 14th. Okay. You know, we were all this way when we were freshmen in college, if we're all honest. We were oblivious to the world out around us. I mean, you know, you're, you're just – you're in absolutely you're in that mode and all these kids 18 19 year old girls are in that dorm and they're saying what's happening why are we you know a lot of them are crying and you obvious they've been crying and 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 yet you know you knew this was serious and i remember thinking you know but i you'd watch the news and it was two weeks to flatten the curve and two more weeks and two more weeks and and you know i thought well at least campbell the 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 fall semester is going to be okay and that's kind of was our attitude initially, but I watched the damage that was done psychologically to my kids and my kids. And I've told you this, we live in a, you've been, you've been here, Stacy. We live in a, a nice, I don't know, it's 33, 3,400 square foot home. Everybody's got space. Um, you know, we have Wi-Fi, we have a, a Peloton, we have all of those things. And yet I watched the destruction that isolation started to do to my kids and I couldn't help but think, what's happening to kids who aren't as privileged as mine? What's happening? Right. And, what, yeah, yeah, and, what, and, and not just the kids. I mean, I remember when all that hit, and I think it was the next Monday or Tuesday when Pinnacle, we decided we should close our office. And everyone was scared, and we, we went and worked remotely, and thank goodness we had trained for that. And, and that all worked well. But I remember being confined at home those first six or seven weeks where you were really confined, where you were really pretty scared and, and didn't know much, you know, did, I mean, I remember Lynn, my wife coming home, she would go to the grocery store and she would come home and take all her clothes off and put them in the washing machine and, and wash them. And we just, we didn't know anything when a package came from uh, Amazon, which is about every day at our house, she would leave it outside for about three days before she would get it in and, and and for me it was the isolation just being isolated from people was was just horrible so you're right it it's horrible on the children but it's horrible on it was horrible on all of us yeah it was you know and for someone like me isolation is not a big deal but i know a lot of people like my brother for example one of my brothers isolation's a, a, a it's not good not a good thing and and you know um 
I just would always think about how many people that were out there that were alone, you know, and, and you start, I don't know, I just started, I started really paying attention to it. And then you started watching numbers and I'm a, I'm a numbers person. I read a lot anyway. I go to a lot of different sites. I go to right wing sites, left wing sites, middle of the wing sites. I, I read a lot. And the more that I looked at it, the more I thought, this is not as bad. This is not going to be as bad as they're saying. And um, Okay. okay. Let, me, let me interrupt you. I yeah. want to transition and come right back. But, Scott, uh, where were you? Were you in Oklahoma City or were you at another game? Tell us briefly about how it ended for you. Well, that timeline is, is actually really interesting. Uh, see, I did a game in L.A. on um, March 8th, um, NBA game. I came back on the 9th um, and then traveled back on the 9th. And on the 10th, we had some calls scheduled, uh, some conference calls scheduled. We got on about midday on the 10th and we were discussing how our studio show was going to have a bigger presence on site for the rest of the season and how we were going to prepare for that. Um, and that call lasted a good while. And then later in the evening on the 10th, I got another call from our senior technical manager and he started uh, reeling off all these new guidelines we had to go by about how we were going to do interviews. You know, we had to space the reporter away from the player, et cetera, et cetera. We went through a lot of different new protocols, and in my mind, I, it didn't click yet. In my mind, I was thinking, okay, who did we make angry? How did we mess up somewhere and trip a player, you know, or something oh, so like that? You thought it was completely unrelated to the virus. At that time. And then I said, what, you know, asked my uh my manager, I said, well, what did we do? And he said, no, this is COVID. And that's when it, or Corona, which was more, you know, called by then. And then it clicked. Was, you it, said the 10th. That was a Tuesday? That was Tuesday. Okay. Right. Um, and yeah, that's that was the day I drove to Nashville. And that's when it was really starting to get talked about. Was It started right. really getting talked about on that Tuesday. Scott's exactly right. Right. And then it was Wednesday when, when the, the game you were talking about occurred, right? Yeah, Wednesday uh, is a 7 o'clock game in Oklahoma City, the Jazz and the Thunder. Yep. Yeah, and I was watching, and I um, and I said, uh-oh, this is getting ready to get very interesting. Um, this could this could not go well. And, and you know, long story short, as a result of that, uh, I did not do a show for four months. You know, I, I had a lunch meeting schedule with a client in Oxford, and he's in his late 80s, and he lives in northeast Mississippi, and he was going to meet me for lunch in Oxford, and he called and left me a voicemail on Thursday and said, hey, I'm not going to be able to make it tomorrow. Let's reschedule. And so I didn't think anything of it, and when Lynn got home that night, I said, my client rescheduled and she looked at me and said he did that because of COVID and that's when I I was like really mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah you know okay so Neil uh, so the, the end of March on a scale of 1 to 10 where 10 the worst in terms of fear and, and whatever angst you were where? A 10 okay so when did when did that start to change? Or, I'll or, tell you when it started to change um, in, I, cause I remember it vividly end of, end of May, middle, middle to end of May. Um, a lot of the kids, you know, again, Campbell's 19, Caroline's 17. Uh, they started getting restless and they would get out. We finally just took the reins off ours and just told them, you know, cause I, we were watching mental health deteriorate, frankly, in our oldest and our youngest. Caroline was fine for whatever reason. She just she just is one of these kids who's just kind of just such a worker. But no, you know, I say that and yet she missed her dance group something bad, Stacy. I mean, it was bad. That's her those are her friends. That's her social life. That's her that's her deal. And uh she couldn't they couldn't dance. They would dance by Zooms. I added a second we have two Wi Fi networks in our house now. We have we have Max South and AT and T. I mean, we were doing everything we could to make the kids happy, and 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 it just it was it was getting rough. And so at the end of May, we kind of would let them go out a little bit. And Caroline went to a high school party. It was out 
It was at somebody's house. It was mostly outside. And a couple of days later, she came back and she said, I won't use names, but so-and-so and so-and-so have it. And I said, have COVID? And she said, yeah. And, and I said, where'd they get it? And she said, there was a Sigma Chi party on campus. And I said, okay. And, you know, do you feel okay? And she's like, yeah, but her best friend's boyfriend had it. And she had been with her best friend literally every day for the past four or five days at this point. And so I called a doctor here in town that I'm uh, friends with, and I explained to her the situation, and I said, should I get Caroline tested? And she said, eh, if it'll make you feel better. (laughs) And she said, she said, just have her come by. We'll swab her or whatever in the morning, and I'll get you the result. And she said, you know, if it were up to me, we'd have these parties every night. And wow. I said, I said, really? Why? And she said, oh, we work it through the, the young people community, and it, it, it'll be over by August. She said, they're not going to get sick. They're not going to die. They don't get sick. And I said, what do you mean they don't get sick? And she said, well, I mean, you know, worst case, they might get some flu symptoms or whatnot, but they, they're, they're fine. And she said, we've got to let it work through them so that there, that there's fewer places for it to spread. And so that changed my mindset a little bit at that point. I was listening to people, and, and there's a guy that posted on our board every day. His name's Dr. Michael Cunningham, and, and he's, been, right. he's been remarkable. He's posted these lengthy updates every day, and sometimes he lets his views get in them, and that's okay. It's a message board, for God's sake. It's meant for views. And um, I just started reading more and listening more, and I realized that my field, the media, was using this thing as a political football. They, they hate Trump. Trump gives them reason to hate Trump. It's a mutual hatred, the media and Trump. And this was something that the media, I, I believe this to this day, um, and I, I'm willing to say it. I'm 50 years old. I'm not going anywhere in my professional career. This is where I'm going to be for a while. So I, I can say this. The media knows that Republicans are weak on health care. Both parties have things they're weak on, and one of the things that Republicans are weak on is health care. And they were able to take this and beat Trump about the neck and face and and head with it. And I think they viewed it as a way to get him out of the White House, and we'll see in 12 days. I I suspect they're probably right. But anyway, as I I just— So this is end of May? End of May, end of the 1st of June. Now you've gone from a 10 to where? I'm about a 4. A five. I mean, I'm like, so I don't know that I. Dramatic. I don't know that I want to get it, but again, I'm not going anywhere at this point. I, I quick. My gym was closed. Oxford shut down. I wasn't going anywhere. There was no place for me to get it. I mean, unless and you know, if the kids brought it home and 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 gave it to me, then so be it. I get it. You know what I mean? That's that was my opinion. That was the way that I thought about it. And uh, you know, I still wasn't seeing my parents. They were lonely. Conversations with them were, were they were lonely, clearly. And, you know, they, they you know, you, you get to be 78 years old. I mean, let's be real. I mean, you know how, you know, you, you're not guaranteed that everybody's going to live to be 100 or live to be 100 healthy. And so these are, you know, some of the last, relatively last healthy years of your life. Do you really want to spend it cooped up in your house or do you want to see your children and grandchildren and your friends and, and do things? And, you know, they're, they're scared. They were scared of it and all of that. So we got into the summer and we had a trip planned to, um, to Florida that we had talked about canceling it and we had planned it for a while and we talked about not going and then we were like, nope, we're going to go. And, and so we went, we, we stayed in Destin at that, at the San Destin Hilton for the first night. And then we went to 30 a, and, you know, I remember going out to eat a couple of times and we went to this like a broken egg cafe one morning, the morning that we were leaving Destin to go to 30A. And, you know, we had one of Camp Caroline's friends, one of her friends was with us, and, and so there were six of us. And, yeah, I was reluctant. I remember almost going, no, I'll just stay out here, and y'all go in and enjoy breakfast. I'll, I'll walk around. I'll, I'll read on my phone or whatever. And, and they were like, no, you're coming. And I did. But I was I remember kind of being nervous about it. And then even at 38, you know, we didn't go we were nervous about 
you getting it? I guess so. I was nervous about me getting it. I didn't want my wife to get it. I, you know, I, I just I, there, I, there was still a nervousness about it, and um, you know, we we were careful at the at the beach if we were honest. But I kept thinking to myself, you know, every time you go into a grocery store or whatever, you're surrounded with this. You're you're going to be exposed by it to it. You're either going to get it or you're not. You're in pretty good shape. You're going to be okay. And I started to just kind of be like, eh. You know, I was I would get frustrated I think that we that we as a society, that we as a media were not being honest with people because the truth is there's a a group that is susceptible and there's a group that's really not. And we just for whatever reason won't tell that story. But instead, we'll tell stories of outliers. And I don't like those stories. The reason I don't like them is because there's an outlier for everything. Like Scott was just at the NBA bubble. Uh, and, you know, you're around some of the most elite athletes in the world. Do you agree, Scott? Yes. Yeah. You know, the Miami Heat made it to the NBA Finals. And one of the players that starts for them is Duncan Robinson. Duncan Robinson grew up in Massachusetts. He didn't start on his high school team until his senior year. He got one scholarship offer from Williams College. He ended up playing, I think, as a grad transfer at Michigan. He got benched at Michigan, and now he's a starting shooting guard for a team that's that's in the NBA Finals that, that took the Lakers to six games before losing to LeBron James and, and Anthony Davis and the Lakers. Well, he's an outlier. He's a great story, but he's an outlier. Right, and the media's been focusing on Outlier. So the, uh, some one thirty-year-old, a thirty-year-old healthy man drops dead of COVID. All right, did he drop dead of COVID or with COVID? What was the deal? I started seeing that the numbers weren't the numbers were being manipulated. That really bothered me. It changed my views. And then you would hear a story about an outlier, and you'd say, "Yes, that's tragic, certainly." But it, unless that becomes common, we're overreacting here. And then I have friends. In the media, I'm not friends in the media, friends in Oxford that own businesses, that their businesses were, were suffering badly. And I just realized, I started thinking more about the human toll, the economic toll, the mental toll, than I did the, the toll of the virus. And when you hear 50% of the people who died, basically 48, whatever it is, were in nursing homes. And I'm not belittling life in nursing homes. I'm not belittling the lives of people who are in nursing homes. They are loved. Their lives are, 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 are cherished. Absolutely. But you know me for a while, Stacey. I'm a, I'm a keep it real kind of guy. If you're in a nursing home, you're in a nursing home because you're not healthy enough. You, you are, your family can no longer care for you. The average nursing home stay is six months. Would you like to guess where you go after the six months? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah, I, yeah. and, and it's, it's a shame that every time somebody, whether it's you or Trump or whoever, says talks about half the deaths are nursing home you feel like you have to caveat and say not that there's we value all lives i mean it we do we Everybody, do value I, lives I, but, hadn't, but, but, I hadn't heard anybody say you know those damn people should have died my, my life I mean, is not as valuable as carson's carson my son is 14 my life is not as valuable right now as his is his life has more value than mine does right it's reality okay, let's, let's Fast forward because I, I yeah. do want to get to Scott. So yeah. I, I have, and, and it just. Where did I totally just, change? I'll tell you where I totally yeah. changed. Okay. Yeah. Early August, I'm 99.99% sure that my wife, Laura, uh, got COVID. I didn't know it. I didn't think anything of it. Laura always has sinus issues in August. And so she had some sinus issues in August. What she didn't tell me, because I guess she just didn't think anything of it until later, was that she was waking up with like night sweats, which is not something she normally does. She didn't tell me. I don't think she I don't think she ever thought she had COVID. But she went to a party. Um, she had been to a party where and I'm keeping names out of this because I just want to protect people. She'd been to a party where it turns out that somebody who was at that party was COVID positive and didn't know it. And I think she got it. She had no symptoms other than the night sweats and the typical sinus stuff that she always has. And 
they were I was excited Campbell went back to Campbell was leaving to go back to Arkansas on a Thursday and Laura and Carson and Caroline were going to Birmingham on that Saturday they were getting out and uh, I was excited to have the house to myself for the weekend and on that Saturday they left and I felt off I don't know how else to put it just off I didn't feel like myself I didn't feel bad I just didn't feel like myself and um that was the day that the Big Ten announced they weren't going to play. Pac-12 was going to announce that they weren't going to play. Um, the Cubs were supposed to play the Cardinals that weekend in a series. The Cardinals had a breakout. They, they, they didn't play. And I was talking to someone at the S- close to the SEC who said, I don't, I don't see how we get there. And I was devastated, if I'm honest. I, I, was, I was crushed. I thought all these years that I've built a business, that I've built my livelihood, it's, it's going to go up in smoke. I, 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 we're not going to make it through a year without sports and, and continue with what we're doing. And I, I didn't know, you know what was going to happen and whether the kids were going to get to go back to school. And the depression really set in on me. And I say all that to say this, the depression I thought was what was making me feel off. In hindsight, it was my first day of having COVID symptoms. Uh, on Sunday... I started having a cough and I had this dry cough that lasted, I don't know, four or five days. And I didn't think a lot of it kind of started to think, you know, maybe. And I told Chase, you probably don't need to come over here. Um, you know, I, I might have something. And I hopped on a Peloton on a Thursday and within five minutes, man, I am drenched, which is not normal. And I took my temperature and I had a fever. It was like 101.4 or whatever. And so I called Chase, I'm like, do not come over here. I'm, I'm pretty sure I've got COVID. I don't really want to talk about it because I don't know, but let's be cool. And I called my medical friend and I said, do I need to get tested? And she said, no. And I said, okay. And she said, she said, you, 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 you almost certainly have it. Just quarantine, stay home, stay away from everybody. Um, if your symptoms worsen, let me know. Otherwise, you're going to be fine. And I just was struck by how laid back she was about it. And she, so the next day I called her because basically the symptoms all sort of went away. The fever went away. I took a nap. The fever went away. Um, the only symptom that stuck with me was this metallic taste in my mouth. It didn't matter what I ate or drank. As soon as I was finished eating or drinking it, and I would try everything. I tried like a peppermint. I tried chocolate. I tried anything that had a strong flavor to see if that would eliminate that taste, and it didn't. So anyway, it went, went away and I started thinking, so that's it. I got to the point and I, I called her and told her and she goes, well, maybe you didn't have the plague, jokingly calling it the plague. And I said, <laughs> I thought maybe I didn't. And then a couple of weeks later, Caroline went to get an antibody test and they told her she had it. She had definitely had it. And I said, man, I'm going to find out. And so I went to the same place the next day and got an antibody test and she said, I'll be back in about 15 minutes with your results. And she walks in three minutes later and she said, this is another doctor. And she said, you had it. Not only did you have it, I think you had it fairly recently and you had a pretty good viral load. Wow. And I said, really? And she said, yeah. And, and I said, I'll be damned. And about that same time, Campbell got quarantined because it went running through the Kyo house at, at Arkansas. And we let Campbell quarantine with someone who was positive and around two other girls who were positive and Campbell never tested positive because she already had it. She'd already had it. And I just started thinking, so we're not that abnormal of a family. It ran through our family. It's doing this all over the place. We're shutting down our society over this. And I, I think to this day it was wrong. I don't think we should have closed down the way that we did. I, I, I think we should have taken the Sweden approach. And I know Sweden gets gets criticized but stacy they're back to living life over there and we're not here we're not this is not yeah. normal what we're doing here and there was a, a some studies that came out yesterday about two things that came out uh one is that only a quarter of all the people that are listed as covid deaths actually died from covid a lot of those people died with covid or after covid the way that we're doing this we're we're cooking the books in my opinion it's my opinion you're free to disagree we're cooking the books to make it more than it was and then the second thing is they came back with people 25 to 44 the excess deaths in other words there's a certain number of people every year age 25 to 44 who die unfortunately it's horrible but it happens 
car crashes and suicides and cancers and whatnot. People die. And uh, the number over the excess, over the typical number is, is extreme. And a lot in the media came out with, oh, see, COVID. More people died of COVID than we even knew. And Scott Gottlieb, one of the doctors who's I've watched in this thing, who's been pretty down the middle, if anything, he's been pretty cautious. He came out and said, no, those are, dis- those are deaths of despair. And you start thinking about what that means, what a death of despair means. It means someone lost a job, lost their family, lost their ability to communicate with people, couldn't feed themselves, couldn't care for themselves. They killed themselves. Substance abuse out is off the charts right now. Um, right, o- man, and that makes sense. Overdoses. Um, I mean, we've 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 done in an attempt to save everyone. We've killed a lot of people, and it makes so, and so it makes to, me to, angry. To, to wrap up, and then I want to go to Scott. Okay, you, you would say your rules would be if you were the czar, wash your hands. What? Social distance. Yeah, I, I, no, I wouldn't even do that. My, my my deal would be let's get back to life. If you are if if you have comorbidities, if you're obese, if you're diabetic, if you have a history of, of anything with your lungs, you don't need to be out in the public right now. You need to figure out a way to isolate, and we as a country need to figure out a way to make that easy for you and to care for you and to make sure that you get your groceries and your medicines. And, and those kinds of things, though, that's where some of our, our program money needs to be going if, if I'm the czar. And then I'm letting young people and healthy people get back to work. And, and, and if they get sick, they, they, if they get it, they isolate. I'd stop some of this massive testing that we're doing. We're just spending gazillions of dollars to test healthy people to find out whether they have it or not. And, and they, they don't, they're not getting sick. And when I say he's not getting sick, I, I'm not talking about do you develop a cough or some sniffles or something. I'm talking about sick enough to go to a hospital. As long as the hospitalization rates and the death rates are going down or have leveled off, I think it's time to get back to work. Get, let people get their jobs back. Let people get their lives back. There's a certain amount of risk in every day. Stacy. when you get up in the morning, Scott, when you get up in the morning and you drive to work, there's risk. Yeah, understood. I just think if we get to a place where what bothers me the most as we wrap up is that we've gone from flatten the curve and protect the hospitals to eradicate the virus. And when I ask people, I always ask, what's the end game? When do we get to take the mask off? People say, why are you so against the mask? Because I don't think they work. Number one. Number two, I think they've become a virtue signal. And then number three, even if they do work a little bit on the margins, my question is, at what point do we not need them anymore? And if the answer is, well, I, I don't know. And then what, what really hit me in Oxford that made me mad, Stacy, as we finish, is I was watching a or listening to a Board of Aldermen meeting. I guess I was watching it on Facebook. And in it, the governor had, had uh, re- taken down some of the mask restrictions. And I thought that's where we were headed in Oxford. And instead, I listened to the mayor of Oxford talk about they were, she'd been told it was going to be a really bad flu season. And I thought, so we're wearing masks for the flu now? Not, not COVID, but the flu. And then this was what got me. The mask just make people feel safer. And I thought, so now we're legislating feelings. And that is a slippery slope. Yep. Yep. No argument there. So Scott, um, and, and for listeners that haven't heard you, you've been on the podcast before. Scott is an audio engineer with with ESPN and has been for a number of years, and I'll brag about him. Uh, he is, if not the top, top audio engineer, he is one of the top two or three uh, with the country, and, and, and it, it, it's obvious because he is the lead uh, audio engineer on Monday Night Football and he does NBA games, and two of their biggest money makers. And you know, you put your best people and your best resources where the money is. But so, Scott, you spent 95 days in the bubble. Tell us how first. Tell us how that evolved to get there. Well, um, hats off to the to the league and, and to the broadcasters, including. NBA television and 
uh, TNT. Um, it all came about very quickly. Um, it was really about a month um, that all this plan took shape and, and came into form. Um, when the league decided they did want to play and wanted to play in a bubble, trying to figure out how to do that was quite an undertaking. Um, and they did it very successfully. We had about a month of planning uh, to get it all together. Unfortunately, a lot of us were on furlough and weren't able to participate in that. Uh, but once we came off of furlough, you know, we had a couple of weeks to kind of get it figured out engineering-wise. And then uh, on site, I went to, uh, let's see, I went to Orlando on July the 10th and drove down there, which is unusual um, for uh, somewhere that far away. Of course, I would normally fly, but our parent company, Disney, had some very draconian travel restrictions in play where if you, no matter who you are in the company, it had to go to a vice president at, at Disney for you to be signed off to be able to fly. So overcoming some of those challenges, trying to get a crew together, um, being able to get as many drivers as we could um, was challenging and make to make room for people who who were essential that had to fly. But once we got all that figured out on who we could actually get there on site, and, and I, my team together, my audio team was not finalized until days before the event started. But once we got on site, it was, it was a rather amazing undertaking. Uh, we basically put together an Olympic-style event, and we did it in about a month instead of having years to plan. So it's uh, challenging from a technical standpoint and especially from a logistical standpoint as far as how was the testing going to be done, how was the quarantine going to be done. Um, what we ended up with was essentially two layers of, of testing and quarantine. We had... If, if you were going to work on the arena floor, if you were going to interact with players, coaches, NBA staff, etc., you had to travel in and test daily and quarantine in your room for seven days. You could not leave your room. Um, food was brought to you. You were taken care of in that way. I was in a less restrictive zone. I had no reason to go onto the arena floor. Um, folks in my zone, we had to travel in, test, and quarantine for one day in our rooms. And that, that zone included people who actually were in the upper levels of the arena. So the arena was split into two zones, a green and a yellow. The green being on the floor, yellow being up higher in the arena and separated by a good distance from the green zone. In fact, our announcers... I'm sure most of you know, historically, announcers for an NBA game are actually on the floor at courtside. But our announcers were actually up higher in the arena um, and in plexiglass booths separated from each other um, and socially distanced. Um, and also, you know, other what, what policies. What was the mask? Did, who had to wear masks? Everybody. You had to, I, I had, to, had to wear a mask except when I was in my hotel room, essentially, or if I was outside exercising, um, or if you were sitting down somewhere for dinner. But even our dining room, our dining hall, dining areas were spread out to where we were six feet apart. I mean, it was, it was an enormous area to accommodate everyone spaced out six feet apart. I mean, did you guys, and you might say, I can't tell you. But did y'all ever relax on into it and, you know. I think that happened too. Have a few people in your room and we don't have to be six feet apart. Or I'm sure that happened. Um, it, it didn't happen in my room. You know, my I did not want to be the first guy. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to be that guy who tested positive. So whatever I had to do to make sure that didn't happen was what I was going to do. And, you know, as a whole, there were no positive tests. Um, which was a great success. Oh yeah, but, the, the, the league deserves a ton of credit, man. I mean, they they mm -hmm. they do, and I, I will, I will forever as someone who was so worried about football, and I knew how much college football was watching the NBA. I will be forever grateful to the NBA, 
into Major League Baseball for getting to a starting line and finding a finish line? Absolutely. Um, I, th- I think they did a fantastic job. And just the event itself, you know, the way we, you know, set, set up. The coach, did the coaches wear masks during? Yes. Oh, yeah, everybody mm-hmm. did down there. They were, they were, they were. The players? The players did not. No, they did coming in or coming out, but of course not playing. Well, I, I know not playing, but right. if they're sitting on the bench. Well, if you, if, if you watch, you know, if you notice that the benches were rearranged to where they were six feet apart. You know, or thereabouts. Yeah, they had a um, tiered bench, so it was kind of right. like it was like a almost like a, a, a for lack of a better word, a, a really upscale bleachers. Exactly. And, and they were they were spread out, and you had an assigned seat. So if you let's say you're, we mentioned Duncan Robinson a minute ago. We'll we'll, we'll stick stick with him for the sake of continuity. When he was was not on the floor, he went to his assigned seat on the quote bench. He didn't, you know, like in a normal game, you just sit wherever. They had a specific places to sit, and and all the training staff and the people, you know, they had specific water bottles. You didn't share water bottles or any of that stuff. They were, the NBA did a did a great job of making sure that that um, that they protected the players and and all of that kind of thing. Here's what I'm interested in, Scott. Uh-huh. I, I saw what was on the floor and the product that was on the floor and, and how they did that, and that was certainly impressive. What to me was more interesting a little bit was you have these these athletes who are all not all but for the most part they're multimillionaires they're young they uh not all of them have families and are settled down um you're saying hey fellas come into this bubble nobody in nobody out for until your team is eliminated and I know the Rockets had an issue with uh one of the players bringing uh bringing a female in was that just the only one that i know you gotta you gotta be careful here you can't out anybody but was was that the only team that that got that did it or was that the only team that got caught honestly to the best of my knowledge that's the only only one that got caught of course i can't speak to somebody got away with something that i'm not aware of but uh yeah for the best that i know um everybody stuck by the rules what was Perfect that being sent home? Yeah. So did you sense that people had, I know Paul George at one point with the Clippers said that the bubble had, had gotten to him, that, that he was mentally just kind of fried from it. I know you didn't get a chance to talk a lot with players and that kind of thing, but from the people you were with, how, the, how, how did people deal with the mundane of it all? I mean, I guess I'm going to backtrack a little bit. Take me through a, a typical day for you in the bubble, I mean, kind of from the moment you woke up until the moment you went to sleep, what was that? What was that like? I know you didn't work the entire day. Some days were quite long. Some some days were short. Um, show days could could be very long. Um, well, I say very long, twelve hours or so. Um, you know, we were allowed to um, get up and exercise. We were staying in a nice hotel. The hotel we were in, the Waldorf Astoria, um, was. Um, strictly uh, ESPN, TNT, and NBA television, and uh, some NBA staff. So no one from the outside was allowed in. We had to wear. So our they created a separate bubble for the TV people. So you were not actually where the players were. Correct. Now you were in a bubble within the bubble. We were. Yeah. Um, now others that were in that green zone I talked about, folks that worked on the arena floor, they were in the area where the players were but we were separated from them. So uh, each morning, you know, uh, uh, walking into the lobby, there was a stand there where I would get my temperature checked and I would get an armband saying that I had my temperature checked that day. Um, When the event first started, uh, folks in my quarantine zone, we were required to test twice a week. um, For the, at the... (laughs) At, uh, when the final started, they, they uh, got us to uh, test every day. We were actually testing every day, as like the folks in the green zone. But anyway, so I could get up and I could go outside, had a nice uh, nice area to take a good run in, come back in. Um, we all had our own rental cars, so we did not share cars, um, drive in the site, um, and uh, go to work. We had a, the, the broadcast compound was enormous. Um, at the height of it, we had 
uh, 14 trucks in there, over 30 trailers that encompassed 250,000 square feet. Um, and that did not include the catering area and dining hall and a field shop. There's another hundred and something thousand square feet um, that were originally parking lots that we built these um, massive compounds in. And then we would go through what would be considered a normal work day where we go in and do our tests. We do our, um, you know, checking everything out, um, checking, make sure everything in the arena arenas works um, and then get ready for our show so from that aspect once we got to work I mean it, it was somewhat like normal um, except that we were all wearing masks um, the layouts in our trucks were changed to try to allow for social di distancing plexiglass between people that would be sitting uh, close to each other we had to actually outboard a lot of our working positions from what would normally be in our mobile units. Um, we had a couple of triple wide trailers where we built infrastructure um, for people to operate, uh, replay machines, robotic cameras, um, and that type of thing actually outside of our normal broadcast facilities. So uh, technically it was a very large undertaking in that aspect, but you know, once we got into our work day, it was not much different than what we would normally do. Did you, did you, um, when, when you, when it first started or you were planning, did you and, and some of your coworkers, did you go, man, what's the chance of really pulling this off? Um, and, and at what point did you go, man, this works? Well, Myself and a lot of my colleagues were very worried on a couple of levels. Um, first, we were worried for our own health. Um, is this something wise to do right now? Uh, at that time, Florida's numbers were exploding. Um, we're, all of us were alert, a little worried about going into that, uh, into Florida at that time. And, and all of the safety protocols were, it was an evolving process. You know, we they didn't have a lot of time to plan all this. And, and so to get all those processes in place took some time. And there were a number of people who who decided that it was not the best thing for them to do, to, to go do that. And so they opted out. They opted out. They did. Now, all of us were, you know, um, I mean, we're, we're businessmen also. We were ready to get back to work. Um, and we were wanted to get to work and get on site. <laughs> Because our agreement provided for a 14-day payout, if, if things went bad, we were going to get paid for 14 days after it was canceled. So let, let's get on the ground and let's put in as many days as we can until something happens and we've, you know, it gets called off. When so, did when did you come to the conclusion, Scott, that hey, we're going to make it? We're going to get all the way to the end here. You know, I guess it was probably about six weeks in or so, six eight weeks in. We just realized everything was was going as advertised and uh, and felt comfortable and realized that it was it was going to work out. How what was what were the couple of days like when I can't remember where did, where did that happen? I guess it was in Wisconsin. The, there was a there was a police incident in, in Wisconsin and uh, the, the guy was shot several times right. um and right. the, the bucks walked the bucks did not play and th there was a meeting and there was a lot of talk for about 24 hours that hey this thing's just not gonna not gonna make it this was i'm not i'm not asking for your opinions or to get you in any political trouble but just on the inside there what were you what were you thinking at that point were you thinking hey this we might not get there after all and it won't be because of covid we did think that um we were worried that it, it was gonna result in the whole uh, the whole deal being canceled. Uh, luckily, that did not happen. You know, as it turns out, what it what it did for me was uh, I got an extra day off. Um, and then, if if the it put the the whole schedule about two days behind. So if the finals had gone to to seven games, we would have worked two more days longer than we had planned on, and that would have been a win also. So. It turned out to be a, a, a non-issue for us, but th there was some worry at that time that, that this possibly was not going to go well. How'd the players get their pot? 
I don't know. I do not know. <laughs> because anybody that knows anything about the NBA knows that um, it's a recreational league. It's they, they can't drink a lot because that would mess up their conditioning. So that they they that's kind of their way of calming down and get winding down after a a high level game. And there was there were several stories written, in fact, about players trying to figure out exactly how much pot to bring in, how much would they need, depending on how right. how long their team stayed. And so I always wondered like about a team like the Heat that was probably there longer than they thought they would be. <laughs> how did you get reinforcements? They, they, well, they, they got to bring family members in at some point, right? They did. They did. At the yeah. very end, yeah. They I, got, I guess <laughs> they just uh, hope they budgeted well. All right. Yeah. Um I'm I'm curious cuz it's over now. Like Lakers are the champs. The bubble worked. Kudos to the NBA. At some point, the NBA has to think about the 2020-2021 season, and we're sitting here today not knowing whether fans will be allowed. If fans are allowed, how many fans will be allowed? Owners took a bath on this season. The bubble helped them sort of wash some of the dirt away but let's face it they 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 got dirty they 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 lost money owners are not going to want to play another season without knowing that there's a way for them to make their money and i would venture to guess that you would tell me that there's no way to play a full nba season in a bubble that that would just simply not work what what are you hearing about the nba moving forward well um what i hear is basically rumor but uh you know the owners, like you said, they want to get back in the arenas. Um, they need to have some fans in the stand and start making some money back. Um, the league and the owners also want to start soon. Um, there is talk that the, the season may start on Christmas Day. Yeah, It may, may start in January on Martin Luther King Day, which would go along with the, their social message. Um but they want to get started and started as soon as possible. Whether they can start the season in their arenas, who knows? If they start in their arenas, how many fans can they have? Who knows the answer to that right now? I know that they would like to get started, let's say, sometime in January, and then I forget the game count. I think it would be a lower number of games in this season, but in, try to finish up sometime in July, Yeah, um, which would put them more back into their normal season of play you know i think you know the ratings were not great um for this last run and i think part of that problem is that we were playing nba in the wrong time of the year people are you know creatures of habit they don't they want to don't want to watch nba in the fall they're watching college football and nfl and the end of the mlb season and all of that was happening at once and i i, I think that had some uh, adverse effects on the NBA. Yeah, I think that was certainly part of the ratings problem. I don't know that it explains all of it, but but I, right, it right. was a social deal, and 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 I think also we went from not having any sports to watch to where everything's on at the same time. Exactly. You know, yeah. so you had some competition. Tell me about you. So you're headed out tomorrow for Monday Night Football. I am. This will be uh, my first game back for Monday Night Football, and. There are no procedures in place for that. Um, I will have to travel to start working on, on Saturday. I have to take the first flight out tomorrow morning, Friday, um, to be able to get to the hotel. Are you going to test. L.A.? Is this Rams-Bears? Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I will have to get to the hotel to be able to test by 3 p.m. So I will... Um, the tests they're doing a pretty quick turnaround, so I should get my result back to be able to go to work Saturday morning. And you know, uh, the social distance, distancing type stuff uh, is, is in play there as well. Uh, masks are required at all times. Um, with, we've had to relay out how our personnel sit in our in our mobile units. Um, had to spread people out. We've actually, for the first time on Monday Night Football, we're using what we call a, a, a Grammy model where actually some of our replay systems and graphic systems will actually be operated from the home office back in Connecticut. Um, that's been done on other shows, including NBA, um, up until this point, but it's never been done on Monday Night Football. So all of those things in play. And and so I know we're, we're coming up on time, Neil. 
uh, and I'll let you wrap it up when you're ready. But, but so, Scott, how does this change the industry? Because I'm assuming that there will be some permanent change in your industry going forward. Yeah, you really can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. Um, as with a lot of industries, including you know people working from home, a lot of businesses are realizing they don't need big office buildings like they thought they did. Um, for our industry, um, we realize that a lot of positions can be done from home. I mean, the technology exists or from the home office. Um, and uh, with the travel restrictions that are in place, um, it's better to hire regionally instead of travel people all across the country. So people are looking at that. Um, so it, it will affect our industry. I think you know, on site, you know, eventually we're going to have less personnel on site. Most of it, more work will be done remotely from either your home or from the the home office in Connecticut and, and all networks are, are doing this. This is not just an ESPN deal. I know CBS um, is using a lot of personnel. They're, a lot of their replay operators are working from home. Um, and they figured out they can hire two for the price of one, keeping them at home and not having to travel them. So, and the thing that worries me the most is what I don't want to see happen is a lowering of production value. I mm -hmm. hope through all of this, we can keep our production values high. Uh, I don't want the viewer to get used to thinking that, you know, a, a camera that's on a laptop shooting um, someone at home is what we should be doing for the rest of our lives. We still want to use high quality video and audio and try to keep the bars level set high for production value. I tell you what it's done with us, Stacy, is along those lines. And, and we're, you know, I've now covered what is this week five of a, of a college football season that included a six week preseason. So I'm 11 weeks into covering a football team. I've had absolutely zero interpersonal rea relations with anyone, not seen a soul, haven't seen a play, haven't seen a practice. Everything's by TV or zoom. And I'm not sure that the consumer recognizes the difference. And maybe no, I can, I can say being a consumer, um, I don't. I don't recognize it. I mean, I. I know they're having a Zoom call, but I still get to hear. Yeah. The players or you interview. What, but, what do you? But where I think, think where, it's where I good think, for, for, well, from your. I mean, it's good that we're having it. I, I think long term, I don't know that it's the best idea because at some point, uh, when you're covering a team or covering a league or whatever, at some point you you need to be able to have conversations with people that are uh, that are beyond a zoom call and you know for us i mean i'm covering a staff that is the first year they're here i've I never i've never really met them so there's no relationships really so you know i, I worry that if this becomes a multi-year thing that at some point just the, the the depth of reporting disappears the quality of reporting disappears not just for me but for everybody i mean you see some stuff that's happening right now that that is because you know, people have known each other for years, and so there's still a, there's still a depth to the reporting. If this becomes a five year thing or something, I think you'll see a dramatic fall off in uh, production value uh, in in reporting content. I I think ultimately the consumer will suffer. So far, the consumer hasn't suffered, and like you know, from a camera angle stuff, I, I thought the the quality of the basketball broadcast in the bubble was really good. Uh, you know, I mean, I got to see I got to see angles of of basketball games that I'm not sure I got to see before. But yeah, and along those lines, you know, one of the thing some good things come out of this. You know, uh, on a basketball game, you never hear the ref call his play. You know, or, or after his review, but because of the the plexiglass that was on the scores table for the scoring people to actually be able to hear the ref, we put in a switch where he could talk to them over speakers and and we took a feed of that too so the, for the first time in basketball we actually heard a ref explain the review of a call and it was yeah. great it was yeah, great I, it, I, it I, needs to become I, a part I, of the broadcast moving forward I, I think it will be we've already discussed it yeah i think that will stick with us it was a, something good come out of it yeah I, it was y'all did a great job i mean I, i'm an nba guy and I'll be honest some of the social justice stuff began to fatigue me at the end but i watched and um the the 
there were some great games. There was you guys did a great job with them. Um, there were a couple of those, especially those series, kind of the first round series that went the distance. The Thunder and the and the Rockets was just great television, and um, I was just relieved to have it back. I appreciate, and I know it was your work, and I know you got compensated, but that was a hell of a sacrifice, Scott, to go spend ninety five days away from. <laughs> family and friends and in some form of isolation so i i appreciate you doing it there was i can tell you that in this house if it means nothing else to you in this house the return of the nba was a stabilizing factor for a 14 year old boy i i promise you that well i'm glad to hear that and it, and it, it was a life experience something i'll never forget um and it's something that i i really am uh proud to be have been associated with but hopefully something that You'll never have to do again. Hopefully not. Yeah, I don't. I don't. But if, but if need to, I will. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I can see. I can see you putting some, maybe some conference tournaments or stuff in a bubble, that kind of thing. But I, the, the idea of an entire NBA season in a bubble setting is not realistic, and I, I don't. I don't think the players would sign off on that. Nor should they. They're young people. You're asking them to give up that much of their lives. That's. That's that's not that's not realistic, and frankly, it's not something the owners want to do either. So there's there there would never be a consensus for it. No, and it, it's very expensive to do. So yeah, no, I don't, I don't see that happening again. Well, Scott, Stacy, it was a lot of fun. I uh, hope people out there enjoyed what was a little bit of a trip down memory lane, and and um, it was also kind of interesting as well. That was it's really fascinating to hear about the bubble. I've I've kind of wondered about it, and i've got some feelers out with some nba people where I'm, i want to talk to some some the players get their perspective of what that bubble was like so uh for stacy wall for uh, scott prey i'm neil mccready we'll be back with another edition of mind on my money presented by pinnacle trust next week don't forget it's pintrust.com p-i-n-n trust.com tell stacy and the people at pinnacle trust that you heard about pinnacle trust on mind on my money or on any of the mpw digital network family of podcasts you get 10 percent off your first year's fees until next time take care